Well, thank you. I'm, I'm enjoying this weekend immensely. It's been lovely to meet so many people. Uh, each one of you uh, an advertisement for Jesus Christ, of course. That's what human beings are, isn't it? Images of Jesus Christ. So it's lovely to meet you. Uh, Steve suggested... Uh, Steve's full of bright ideas, isn't he? Uh, two minutes ago, he suggested, why don't you talk about how to read narrative in the Bible? So I've jotted down some ideas. Uh, if you're brought up on reading the epistles, uh, it's easy to know what to do because the writer always tells you what to do about it. But nowhere in the book of Esther is an instruction about what to do in response to the book. And that's true of lots of stories, that is, histories, in the Old Testament. So let me give you some advice on that. Uh, the first thing is not, not to... Uh, don't ask the first question, what should I do? Um, you need to ask some other questions before you ask, what should I do? Uh, the first thing to, uh, to remember is that because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's right to do it. So um, there are lots of things that people in the Bible do which are naughty and you should not do them. So please don't think that David is always a good example. He isn't, for example. Uh, so uh, don't... Uh, and often uh, in the Bible, the, the, what people do isn't evaluated. You have to think of other parts of the Bible to work out whether this is a good idea or not. So... For example, in, the, in Genesis, you find people having more than one wife. Oh, I don't even have one, but I'm not sure that having two wives is a very good idea uh, and expensive apart from anything else. Uh, but if you read Genesis chapter 2, you know that actually one husband and one wife is probably the best plan. But the text doesn't often say, and this was a bad thing to do. But if you read the rest of the story and the conflict in the family because of the two wives and five concubines, you realise that it wasn't a very good thing to do. So the, 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 uh, the moral uh, comment is not made immediately, but you can see it if you read the rest of the story. So please don't think, Abraham did it, it must be okay for me, particularly if it's killing your firstborn son. Um, the thing to ask is, uh, how is God working out his big plan? So, what is God's big plan? Uh, it was to bring the Lord Jesus Christ to be the saviour of the world. And that's the good question to ask about the Old Testament. How is God working towards achieving his big plan? Uh, and I hope you've already made the connection with Esther that uh, the preservation of the Jews uh, by the miraculous intervention of God is partly because God wants to work out his big plan by sending his son, the Lord Jesus. It's also good to ask the question, how does this point towards Jesus? It may not be a direct prophecy, but there may be hints of what Jesus will be like. And uh, I think Esther is like that. When she, when she says, uh, if I perish, I perish, uh, she's willing to offer her life in the hope that she will save her people. 
that I think points to, to, towards the Lord Jesus Christ, though it isn't a prophecy of him. It's a, a sign of godliness in the, among the people of God, which should be exemplified by all believers in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, and so therefore it's also true of Jesus. Another question, good question to ask is, what deep truths in this narrative, in this story, uh, connect with or apply to life in our world today? And I've tried to do a bit of that as we've gone through Esther. And then the final question I think to ask is, and so what should I learn for my life out of all of that? But if you don't ask the first lot of questions, you might you come a cropper with the last one. Any questions or comments about that? Anything I should clarify? <laughs> sure. Thanks, Tom. Okay, let's head towards the scriptures, so let us pray to our gracious God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your holy scriptures show us what it is to live uh, trusting in your salvation in Jesus Christ. And your scriptures are also useful for correction, training in righteousness, reproof, so that we may are able to serve you well. So please teach us, transform us, change us and equip us by our study of the book of Esther this morning that we might live and serve for your glory. Amen. Well, I think one of the shocks in reading the book of Esther is uh, what an awful world it was. It's not the best of all possible worlds, the Persian Empire, is, is it? It is formidably efficient, as a matter of fact, and very well organized and very prosperous but also very corrupt. And uh, we tend to think that if our world is efficient and well organized and prosperous, it's a good world. Which is why our politicians talk about the economy all the time. They think that if the economy is going well, then everything is fine. But you can have a magnificently effective economy and have a very corrupt government. And you can have a very good economy, but a very... Uh, a society that functions really badly.
And in a way, the Persian Empire was a great empire, but we see it uh, in the book of Esther at its worst with an incompetent, bumbling, <laughs> uh, wealth wally as its leader and uh, the malicious Haman out to get the Jews. And one test of a good society or a good community or a good nation is how effective it is at uh, uh, stopping evil happening. And one of the weaknesses of Western democracies is that they're too optimistic about human nature and are ill-prepared to deal with intentional, vicious evil. They're, just, they're paralysed by it. I think God uh, describes evil societies in the Bible so that we will not be surprised when our society becomes evil or not surprised that there are evil nations in the world, evil people in the world. But it's so important to remember that as clearly as God describes evil and no more no more powerfully in the Gospels with the death of the Lord Jesus and no more dramatically in the book of Revelation. As powerfully as God describes the evil of the world, not just the evil of my heart or your heart, but the evil of the world, it also describes and reveals the great, powerful and compassionate God who rules all things for his good pleasure. It reveals a mighty saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and a transforming spirit. But we won't realise the uh, immense power of the gospel if we don't recognise, first of all, the immense power of evil. And I think we in, in the West are particularly vulnerable to ignoring the power of evil and the evil of the world. It's, I think, a fatal flaw that we worship happiness and imagine, us, imagine that happiness can be achieved and should be achieved. And that we deserve it. I read a lovely story of a lady in uh, Queensland who took part in a marathon, the kind of thing I often do before breakfast, the odd marathon or two. Uh, anyway, she was running in this marathon and she decided to run a half marathon, which I think is a bit wimpish, really. Uh, <laughs> But she took the wrong turning at the halfway mark and ended up running the whole marathon by mistake and winning it, which I think is pretty cool, really, isn't it? That's right. To win a marathon without intending to run it, I think, is the ultimate cool, really. That's right. But if I ask what marathon are Australians running, I think it's the happiness marathon, isn't it? And I think that's often true for Christians. It's a kind of respectable prosperity gospel that God should give me happiness in my life. Indeed, I've met Christians who've become Christians because they've thought God promised them happiness. And then when they haven't been happy, they've given up on God because they weren't serving God. They were serving happiness and using God as a servant, their servant, to get happiness. 
or it might be uh, comfort or security, it's, but it's a kind of happiness, which is why the COVID uh, restrictions have been such a frustration for Australians. It's, it's so un-Australian not to be able to get your quota of happiness. So God displays evil in the, in, in, in the Bible, the evil of the world in the Bible, so that we will see the wonder of God's power and grace and compassion by way of contrast and trust that our great God will, in the end, win the day through the death and resurrection and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I visited uh, a country in Asia I met a lovely Christian man there, an older man, and he said to me, our politicians are corrupt, uh, the media is corrupt, and the army is corrupt, and our judges are corrupt. There is no hope for our country. And I often say to Christians in Australia, you may not face persecution, but your children certainly will. Or in the words of one Christian leader in the States, I will die in my bed. My successor will die in prison for being a Christian. And his successor will be executed for being a Christian. That's the future of our world, I think. That's the future of Australia. I was in India, sorry, this is the last story. I was in India speaking at an evangelist conference and if you're an evangelist in India, you're the lowest form of church life. The bishops are at the top, of course, as you might expect, and you go down and down and down till you get to the village evangelists. And um, uh, they're paid the least and they're the most persecuted. One of them said to me, what are we doing wrong that we're persecuted while you in the West aren't persecuted? I said, you're doing nothing wrong and our day of persecution will come and you'll be an example to us of how to trust Christ in the midst of persecution. And you can't read the New Testament without learning that persecution is the normal state of the Christian church in the world. Paul says it, doesn't he? All those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So when it happens to you, please don't think that you've been deceived. It was there, not in fine print, but in plain print in the scriptures. And we have to be preparing our young people and our children who want to be believers for that reality. But here is the wonderful message we can learn from Esther. That God works in the smallest detail to achieve his big plan. That God uses compromised people to achieve his will. That God even uses evil and tragedy for his long-term good purposes. And that God uses the smallest human activities for purposes far beyond our imagining. I'll say those again. God uses the smallest details to achieve his big plan. 
God uses compromised people like us to achieve his will. God uses evil and tragedy for his long-term good purposes. And God uses the smallest human actions for purposes far beyond our imagining. Well, at this point, I need to retrieve my spectacles. <laughs> you know you're getting old when you need your spectacles to find your spectacles. <laughs> Well, uh, we left Esther and Mordecai yesterday with these words. Uh, Mordecai's words, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What a great challenge and what a great question. And then Esther's magnificent response. I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Better to serve God even if I fail than to fail to serve God. Isn't that a wonderful motto? <laughs> Better to serve God even if I fail, that is, I don't achieve what I wanted to, than to fail to serve God. So what happens? Chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robe, stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters. Magnificent, you know, you get the idea of the magnificence of the setting. The king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne, a throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter with his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, "If it ple Wouldn't you expect her to say, Please save my people? What wisdom she has. If it please the king. Let the king and the Haman come today for a feast I've prepared for the king. Well, we know the king loved his food, loved his tucker, so uh, he's, he's really pleased about that. The king said, bring Haman quickly, we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. What do you expect Esther to say? Save my people. No. Another party. 
Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favour in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'll prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has asked. Well, what do you make of that? I think she's a wily woman. And uh, she knows that the king likes his tucker. And she knows that the king approves of Haman. She wants to lull Haman into a false sense of security. And if the king has said yes twice to her request, he is perhaps more likely to say yes to the third request. But the Bible doesn't say that. That's me just trying to understand how women work. <laughs> a subject in which I'm notoriously ignorant. So Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And this is so, this is just reveals uh, <laughs> Haman's character so perfectly. Haman recounted to them, though they already knew it, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. And Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited to her together with the king. And here's the revealing comment. Yet all this is worth nothing, as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So someone who has everything is so easily made unhappy by one thing they don't like. That's the sad thing about wanting happiness, that you can get as much happiness as you can gather. There's always one thing you can't get. There's one fly in the ointment, and then you're miserable. That's the fate of those who pursue happiness. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. They're full of good ideas, aren't they? Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. And you can see the way in which uh, people's natural character is defining their actions. And in Haman's case... Uh, getting him in more and more trouble. Now that night, the king, here's a coincidence, the king couldn't sleep. You know what that's like, don't you? And the best thing to do is to get someone to read to you, like they did when you were little. So he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who'd sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honour or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? That was a very significant question because one of the duties of a king uh, in Persia was to reward those who'd protected him, and the king hadn't done it. So, good question. And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows he'd prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here, 
standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, full of pleasure at being invited to the king's presence again. And the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honour more than me? So Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honour, you can see his brain twirling, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn and the horse the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honour. Let them lead him on the horse throughout the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you've said, do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing out that you've mentioned. Wow. Oh. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. And Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then the wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, very revealing words, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Isn't that an amazing statement? They recognise the truth of the true God's power. They recognise that God will protect his people. Extraordinary, isn't it? It's a bit like those sailors in Jonah chapter 1, isn't it? While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuch arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, <laughs> it's a long party, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. What is your request, even to the half of my kingdom? It shall be fulfilled. And then she goes for the jugular. If I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Notice that? She's asking for her own life and for her people's life. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we've been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have kept silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who's dared to do this? Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. How wise she was to talk about her own life and the life of her people without naming Haman. Then to have the king ask who's done it, then she can give the answer. Brilliant, brilliant. She's one of the wise women of the Old Testament. Then the king rose in his wrath, he's so furious, from wine drinking, 
that's something to get away from the wine drinking, went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, helpfully said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman's prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50, cub 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he'd prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Think of some proverbs. Pride goes before a fall. Many are the plans of men, but it's God's will that prevails. What great lessons we can learn from Esther and from the king and from Haman. When we think about God's work in the world, we tend to fix our attention on one or two ways in which God works and so miss many different ways in which he is at work. This reduces our praise of God and our vision of who God is. So God works in obvious and dramatic ways, but he also works in hidden and habitual ways. God works in miracles, but actually God's at work in the very air we breathe and all the food we digest and all our seeing, hearing, thinking, walking, loving, knowing and hoping. God works in salvation, but God also works in creation. God works in healing. God also works in our weakness and illness. God works in weakness as well as in strength, and in strength as well as in our weakness. God loves us when he gives us attractive gifts. God loves us when he disciplines us. Sometimes he speaks through the prophets. At other times in the Old Testament, people have to read what God has said in the past and apply it to their own situation. Sometimes God speaks directly. At other times, as an Esther, people have to discern God's wisdom by observing the world around them and by doing the best they can. Each part of Scripture shows us something about how God works. But no part of Scripture gives us all the picture. 
we learn from Esther one way in which God works, by coincidences. But we also know that God works in other ways. The book of Esther isn't like the Gospel of John, where God is so clearly revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how remarkable in the book of Hebrews to read about those who lived by faith. I think Esther is an example of a woman who lived by faith. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their death by resurrection. Those are all success stories. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a res better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and of goats, destitute, persecuted and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. These all died in faith, but they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Dear Heavenly Father, as Esther looked to you, her God, may we look to you and to the Lord Jesus Christ and set our eyes on him and run with endurance the race that is set before us. In his name we pray. Amen.